Okay, I just want to pray real quick. Father God, we just thank you that we have the people we have here today. And God, I just want to personally thank you that we have 28 kids in the kids' room today. Those kids are the life of our church, and I just want to thank you for that. And I ask today that all the words that I give, if they have fruit, let them bear good good ground. And if they don't, let them fall by the wayside. We just thank you, Father God, for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first thing I was going to do is I was going to tell you, before I was a teacher, I was in business, and then I got a divorce, but inside of me, I really wanted to be a teacher. So here I am as a single mom, wanting to be a teacher, but I didn't have the extra money to get the extra degree to be the teacher, and it's another story for another day, but something really amazing happened. I was able to get a job without a teaching degree, and... They set me up in this classroom with middle schoolers. So that's kind of a scary thing when you're set up with seventh graders. So they put me in a seventh grade class. It was my job to teach all of it, I had to, except for science. I had to teach social studies, math, and language arts. I'm pretty good at language arts, but math, not so good. I was horrible at math. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what my, one of my first lessons were um, when I first got there. And I always started out with the drawing because we had to teach math for an hour and a half. And I didn't know how to do that. So I spent like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes doing artwork because, uh, you know. So anyway, so our first lesson was um, the order of operations. So real quickly, I'm going to do this. And you guys kind of remember this, right? Okay, do you guys remember, please excuse my Daryl and Sally? Anyone? All right. Well, what that means is parentheses, right? Go first. Then we had exponents. Multiplication. Division. Addition. And subtraction. So then we put a formula up here, and it goes like this. Let's see if I can get it up. I'm just going to take that off. Okay, so we've had something like this, right? And they had to teach them how to do um, the order of operations. So we had to do exponents first, or no, parentheses first. So 9 times 2 is 20. Uh, 3 times 3 is 9. And then we had to do multiplication, right? So we did 9 times 20 is 180. And then we had to do division. So 4 divided by 2 is 2. So that equals 100. 78, right? Oh, you guys didn't disappoint me. I was hoping you wouldn't. I did, I counted 16 correct functions on this board. I I screwed up two, which you guys caught right away, didn't you? I misspelled deer, and 9 times 2 is not 20, it's 18, right? When you teach middle school, that's what it was like being a teacher from middle school. If you misspelled anything... 
if you multiplied and made a mistake anywhere, they did exactly like you guys did. You didn't disappoint me. But I did this on purpose because what I wanted to show you is I wanted to show you how our culture is designed. We are a culture that, that uh, recognizes mistakes before we recognize all the right things I did. I did 16 correct things. I made two mistakes. And you guys were on it with my two mistakes. And you didn't disappoint me. Actually, my friend showed me this in school. And we, as teachers, he showed it to me and I, we thought, holy cow, this is what we're doing to our students in class. We are focusing on all of their negative points and not on their positive points. And that's how all of us probably were raised. Would you agree? All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So basically, we grow through life. Um, we are human beings that are a social human being. So we absolutely depend on social interaction in order to grow. Actually, there's research that says if you are an infant and you get no social interaction, no touch, no words when you're an infant, you actually have compromised health. And if you continue not getting any attention while you're a child and as you grow, you actually can die. And so that's what um, God has put in us to be a very social person. We crave human contact and we crave positive affirmation. Would you agree? So when we grow up, and a lot of us were lucky to be parents, and we're a student of life as we grow up, aren't we? Throughout our childhood, we meet our parents, and our parents tell us what is a good job. So if we do something well, they say, that's a good job. And if we hear that's a good job, we're going to continue to want to do that, correct? Or if they say, um, you should do that more often. We're going to strive to do it more often because it gives us the positive affirmation that we need. On the other hand, if we hear, you're not very good at that, then we may not want to try to do it again. We're like, oops, that was a bad idea. Not going to do that again. Or if we hear a bad job, we're not going to want to do that either, right? Or a bad idea. If we hear, wow, you're pretty good at that, or you're not going to... Not a good thing to do. What we end up doing is not doing that. So we are shaped by positive words, positive affirmation. And we're also shaped by those who tell us it's a good idea, bad idea, bad thing to do. And that's not a bad thing. Trust me, as a teacher, it's nice when you have parents that tell their kids that's not a good thing to do, right? Because we want them to behave so we can have ordered classrooms and an ordered life. Um, So we are shaped by all of this. The other thing we're shaped by is our educational system, and I know that quite well. Right now what I'm working at is a a school counselor, and I get the wonderful privilege of not only watching students but also watching teachers. And it's interesting to see what I see. I see a lot of really good stuff, but I also see stuff that you're like, wow. Um, So teachers comment to students about the right or wrong answers. So we focus on, and our focus is, You're wrong here. You need to get it right because that's our goal, that we have correct answers, right? Or sometimes you get teachers that have agendas. One thing that I hate, it makes me cringe every single time because I grew up totally not organized. I am not an organized person. Actually, no, I take that back. I'm organized. It's just that no one understands my organizational system, right? Which we all know someone like that. And the one thing that I have always 
cringed at were those teachers who decided they were going to organize my life. And what's made me mad is I am organized. It's just not their organizational, uh, their system. And what I see a lot of times, and not a lot, but I see it quite, uh, maybe once or twice a year, I'll see teachers that their high need for organization causes them to go up to a child. And normally it's your boy that's got the really messy desk. And they will dump the desk on the floor in front of their peers, in front of this little boy's peers, and tell them to redo their desk and organize it. At that point, that is not the student's problem. That becomes the teacher's problem who has that high need of organization. Um, my favorite when working with, as a school counselor is dealing with uh, first graders, first, second grade boys who throw temper tantrums. Because it gives me a lot of information when I see temper tantrums. I can find out exactly what's going on with that child because they say it. It's communication. I also like fourth and fifth grade girl drama. Love it. Absolutely love it. The other thing teachers can do is impact um, students in positive ways. I had a teacher once, and I never thought I was really intelligent growing up. And I had a sophomore biology teacher that came up to me, and he said, you know what, you need to join the swim team because all intelligent people swim well. I was so excited that he called me intelligent, I was willing to swim. And so I joined that swim team. He probably was just trying to find enough girls to make the team, and he knew that would get to me, but it worked. And he had a huge positive impact on me. In fact, I swam a little bit in college, and I loved it. He found something within me that I was, that was nurtured and made me feel good about myself. The other thing that provide our structure as we grow up is our peers. And our peers are very powerful because they give us the idea that there's cliques. You've got nerds and geeks and jocks and cheerleaders and um, you've got emos, which I think is interesting that came out in the last five years. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but that's an interesting. Basically, they're boys who enjoy crying in high school is what they tell me. Um, They like all the darker things of life. Um, Pecking order. If you see little boys, the stereotypes for little boys are very rigid. Little boys need to act like boys. They've got to play football. They've got to be tough. And and if they're not, they don't fit within the pecking order. And so you end up with little boys who are shunned from the group because they like to read or they like to do something a little bit different, like artwork. So we have our pecking order. Um, we tell the peer group tells you what is acceptable for a boy to do, what's acceptable for a girl to do, that type of thing. So we have those pecking orders. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is my daughter, when she was three years old, I wanted her to dance because I've always wanted her to dance. She didn't say she wanted to dance, but I wanted her to dance. So I, I had her join dance. And again, that's another thing that we do that causes programming in our kids, right? So she started dance and she loved it to my great relief. She loved dance. So then I had Joel three years later or two years later And Joel sat with me um, watching Gabby dance, and he wanted to dance. So here's this three-year-old boy that wants to dance. And you look at all of the dancers, and they're all little girls dancing. There's maybe only two boys in the whole group of, I don't know, 200, 250, 300 kids that are dancing. And I thought, you know, I could easily divert his attention to football or soccer, some boy thing. But I decided I'm going to let him dance because he really wanted to dance. 
And I'm glad I did, because as he's grown older, this has been an outlet for his creative energy. And if I would have denied that because of stereotypes, I would have shelved that creative energy that he has, and he would have been probably frustrated as an older adult trying to figure out, older adult, as an older teen trying to figure out um, how he's going to release that creative outlet. It was interesting, as I sat with the parents at dance, they would tell me all sorts of things. They would tell me, well, my son wanted to dance, but his father wouldn't let him. Or they would, when it came time for costume time, that was really interesting. I'd try to pick a costume out. Well, you wouldn't have your boy wearing that. That's kind of girly. Or what's with the puffy sleeves? That's kind of a girl thing to do, right? And it's interesting what we give out as adults on what we think is proper and not proper for kids growing up when it comes to gender issues. So what happens is when we get older, we tend to put our good face forward. It's the same thing as if you were going for a job interview and you tell the people that are interviewing for jobs, when you go, dress in your, your best um, outfit, put your best face forward, only tell them about your strengths, avoid telling them anything about your weaknesses, and you will do well in that interview. The... One interview, they put me on an interview once with teachers, and I came up with a question that made them expose a negative thing about them. We had teachers that were applying crying, and the other ones that were in the interview with me, they were looking at me like, you had to ask that mean question, didn't you? And I thought, well, that's the only way we can find out how they deal with stress, how they deal with pressure, because that's when they're going to get on our nerves, right? We always want to put our best face forward. So we begin to only show actions that are accepted by others. So we show actions that give us a positive response of others. Even when I stood up here to pray, I was thinking before, how do I pray so they think I'm godly? You know, <laughs> what do I, and you guys have all been through that when it's your turn to pray, and you're like, what am I going to say that's going to sound like God when I pray, right? And I heard God say, Jackie, just pray from your heart. Because that's really where I come from, is from the heart. Um, we reject and bury any actions that we have that may bring negative parts to us or negative attention. And that's a good thing, because obviously I'm not going to stand up here and pick my nose, right? Because that's just not cool. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are protective measures for us so that we don't come up and say, oh, man, I wish you really wouldn't have said that or done that. So some of it's good, but a lot of times we reject things within ourselves that we think are not acceptable by others or actions that we do that may not be acceptable. Teenage years and relationships, this is the worst. Um, One thing that I found out right after I got divorced is some of the problems that I had that led to the divorce, not saying it was completely my fault, but some of the problems that led to divorce started when I was dating in adolescence. Consider you have your teenagers dating when their frontal lobe's not fully developed. Your frontal lobe is not developed until you're 24, and that's what brings our critical thinking and our where we think things through, right? So when we date, and especially for girls, we are giving our heart to someone whose frontal lobe is not operating. They're brain damaged, right? Every time I got mad at my middle school kids, I'd say, they're brain damaged, they're brain damaged. <laughs> I'm the one that's got the clear frontal lobe. It's going to work here. But when we're adolescents, we may have um, maybe in love, and they're everything to us, this boy is. And then they turn around, 
and they shun us, and they tell us that, of course, they can't take the blame because their frontal lobe's not working. So they're going to blame shift about the relationship falling apart. So it's going to be the other person's fault. And the person receiving that negativity is going to say, oh, my gosh, it's my fault. And they're going to take it in, and that also is going to be incorporated in their life and in their heart. And they're going to take it to the next relationship they go to. And they're going to take it to the next relationship they go to. And on and on and on until it builds up within them all these bad things and judgments they've made about themselves. So what we find here, and this is a suggestion by Carl Jung, and mostly it's pretty well accepted in the counseling. His name is Carl Jung. And he came up what we call his shadow part of us. And his definition is the unconscious aspect of the personality which the conscious ego does not identify in itself. So basically, what we're putting in the light is all the good things we want people to see about us. We, we don't normally share things that we think are negative. I don't go up to people and say, Hi, my name is Jackie, and I really think deep down I'm a loser. We don't say that. We hide from that. So everything that we think is negative about ourselves remains in darkness, and that's our shadow. So everything that we have judged ourselves for or everything that we have done that has been a failure, we have put in the shadows. Um, Another way of putting this is consider your house. Okay, So everybody think about their house. And even Tammy and I were having a discussion when we went to the junk job. We were talking about even the most tidiest person, even the cleanest person, you will walk in their house and they'll say, oh, there's a mess. My house is messy. And you're looking around, you're thinking, gosh, I could lick your floors. They're not messy, right? But everybody has that in the back of their mind that there is some mess in their house. And so when they come to visit, they're always feeling like they're going to have to apologize Or what they do is if they find out they're going to get visitors right away, they start shoving whatever their mess is is in one room. And that room is the no-go zone, right? I'll tell you, this is my garage. We, um, John and I moved from a big house to a smaller house where we share. We have half a duplex and um, nothing, not all of it fit in the duplex. So what didn't fit, we threw in the garage. This was eight years ago. Okay. Now you would think, just take those boxes and throw them out. Throw them in the trash, take them to the ark, whatever. But I know somewhere in all those boxes are going to be some family pictures, maybe my wedding pictures, um, some things, something grandma gave me a while back that I want to keep. So I don't want to just throw those boxes away because deep inside those boxes are going to be treasures that I'm going to want to have as soon as I get around to unpacking the boxes. The thing is, over eight years, I've never had a chance to get around to unpacking the boxes. One of these days, I will get to this, um, unpacking the boxes and find the treasures that I'm looking for. But it may take a lifetime, right? Sometimes it does. So a lot of times, our lives are like a house. We have on display everything we want people to see, but deep inside of us, in a room inside of our conscious, We have everything that we think is negative, unacceptable, things that we've judged about ourselves in in the background. But we also have treasures within us that we have in the background as well. Consider the boy who's five years old, and he loves drawing. 
but it's not a socially acceptable thing to draw. So he shelves that artistic ability away in his subconscious. When he gets older, he may decide, wow, you know what, I really love to draw. And he may pull it out and realize this is a gift that God gave him to bless others. Kind of like with my teaching. I wanted to teach my whole life, and someone talked me out of it when I was getting my degree, so I got a degree in business. But lay inside my subconscious was that desire to teach, and it took a divorce, and for me to really think about myself, to realize that I had left in my subconscious this treasure, and that was me wanting to teach. And so I brought it out, and God honors that, because it's an amazing story how I got a teaching job. Nobody in their right mind hires me to teach without a degree, throws me in a portable outside of the school, shuts the door, and never checks on me. I mean, that was crazy, don't you think? I'm looking at these 25 kids saying, I have no clue what I'm doing, but we're going to make it through the year, right? God honors those. The other thing we want to be careful with while we're um, parents is we don't want to shelter our kids too much because it's the trials that they go through in life that causes them to be strong. You need to allow your uh, kids to go through tough situations so that they understand how to rely on God and they understand how to um, handle fear and frustration. Uh, again, what I do is I work as a school counselor. We actually have a mother. I probably shouldn't talk about this. We have a mother that stands outside the playground on the chain link fence and she paces, waiting for someone to look at her child funny. And then if she sees it happening, she will rush into my office and say, I want you to deal with this bullying my child has. Finally, I told her, I said, you know what? We need to sit down and talk because what you're doing is more meeting your needs than it's meeting your child's needs. Let's consider, um, oh, the smaller battles in childhood prepares them for the challenges that they have in adulthood. So when we think about it, let's talk about David and Goliath. A lot of us know the story. David was entrusted by his father to be a shepherd to their sheep. He had to guard the sheep. So if there were bears and lions out, it was his job to kill the bear and lion. What David learned by doing this as a young man, that if he kills the bear and the lion, that God's going to be with him. God's going to strengthen him during this triumph, and he was successful. So when he came to facing Goliath, he was able to do that because he had learned the small lessons earlier in life. In fact, David came just bringing lunches to his brother, and he found the Philistines, which numbered um, numerous Philistines. On one side, you've got the, the Israelites on the other side, and everybody's just facing each other down, kind of like what I see sometimes in fights when they're all just sitting there staring at each other, and you're like, whoa. But they're facing each other down, and then you've got this 10-foot giant saying, if anybody challenges me, you know, taunting the group. And the whole idea was that the Philistines were putting out their champion, which is Goliath, and saying, whoever wins between this fight wins the war. So if the Philistines, Goliath wins, then the Israelites will be servants to Goliath. If the Israelites win, then the Philistines will be servants to the Israel. That's a big, that's a big fight. I mean, there's a lot on that fight. You've got your king, Saul, who, by the way, is said to be a head taller than anybody else and a fierce warrior. But he's sitting back there waiting for someone to do his job. And then you get little David coming in saying, um, what, are you kidding me? I can beat this guy. And we know the story. He gets up. He hits the guy a couple times in the head, chops his head off. The kids always love when we say that. He chops his head off. 
takes the head to Saul and wins the battle. David wouldn't have been able to do that if he didn't learn at an early age that God's always going to be with him to strengthen him. So David didn't need to know Goliath's strength because he knew, already knew God's strength on that. In contrast, we have Saul. I didn't realize this, but when I was reading about Saul, he was able to meet up with Samuel because he was looking for, I can't understand this, he was looking for his father who lost six of his donkeys. How do you lose six of your donkeys? And why in the world would you be going from town to town looking for them? Doesn't it, I, There's got to be something in there about that. Because when we lost our horses, they were just like across the road. They weren't like in three towns down. <laughs> kind of tells me about what maybe Saul's parents were like. Uh, we had donkeys a couple months ago. I don't know where they went. So Saul, go out and find our donkeys. We don't know what happened to them. But anyway... Um, Saul continually showed cowardice during battle because he had not learned how to rely on God's grace. Saul was all about the law. He was all about what to do right legally, what to do wrong. If you did something wrong, what was against the law? He, He relied totally on man, totally on man's law, never on God. And you see this through his life. So back to the shadow person. Um, we, hi- we only show our good face forward, and we don't a lot of times show what we don't want people to see. But they creep up sometimes because God wants us to deal with our shadow person. He doesn't want us judging ourselves. He doesn't want me saying to myself, you're a loser. He doesn't want my fears to run my life. Because a lot of times if I have a fear, that's going to come out. Um, and I'll give you an example. One of my bigger fears is to never be a victim again. I don't want to be a victim. I want to be an overcomer. I can't stand those who are victims. So I will actually pick someone out that's the weakest in the herd, and I will bully them, even as an adult. Um, I even do it at school, which is terrible. I'll pick out the weakest teacher and pick on her and think, God, what's going on there? What really is driving that is my fear is so great on being a victim that she is reflecting that fear. So by being a victim, she's reflecting what it's like to be a victim. And I can't stand that because it identifies the fear that drives my actions. And that's called a projection. And we do this, and God wants us to do this, because it's going to pull out within us what we need to change, what's going to make us a better person. So we really need to pay attention to our projections One way to do this is think about, go through your week and figure out who is it that I just can't stand? Who is it that I can't handle? And ask God, why is that? Because in most cases, it's about you and not about them. Occasionally, they're projecting on you. I had one teacher. She hated me. She was so organized, and I'm not. And so she would always tell teachers, well, I'm completely different than Jackie because Jackie's not organized, and I am. You can recognize that as someone projecting onto you. Her fear is that someone's going to think she's incompetent if she has a paper out of place. And I reflect that fear so she couldn't stand being in the same room with me. And it was, I couldn't stand her either, to tell you the truth. I, um, so you have to realize there is a lot of fear that relies in your shadow. Uh, another projection I had is being a teacher. teacher. Teaching really gives you an opportunity to really learn about yourself. I had two girls when I first started teaching, and I couldn't stand them. I hated them. 
and you're like, as a teacher, I love kids. I absolutely love kids. I love all types of kids. But these two girls, I could not stand. So I went almost through the whole year concentrating and focusing on these two girls, saying that I just cannot stand them. Finally, I went to God and said, God, what is it about these two girls that I cannot stand? I love kids, but these girls, I just want to, you know, terrible fantasies that you have of these girls. (laughs) So God showed me that of a time when I was in seventh grade, which is when we do have a lot of our hard problems, he showed me a time when I was being bullied by two girls in middle school. And they were the ones that, have you ever noticed those girls that have it all? You know, they could figure it out. They've got everything dialed in. And they had the whole crowd working against me. They were making me feel like I was a loser. They were making me feel like I was, um, I'm just bringing out all these terrible things with me. Finally ended up, we were walking home last day of school, and they came and pushed me in the weeds because they were mad at me. I don't know what I did to make these people mad. I, I really don't. I was probably a snot. I was kind of a snotty girl. But she pushed me in the weeds, and I got up, and I have no clue what I was going to do next because a teacher came and yanked us out, and we got sent to the office for fighting. I kind of wonder if I would have gotten up and hit her, if I would have had the same insecurities later on in life. But, you know, we'll never go there. But I had put in my shadow all these feelings of unworthiness, all these feelings of rejection by these two girls that I actually thought were kind of cool and wanted to be a part of their group, that I took it all the way with me until I was 36, teaching these two girls, and these two girls were a reflection of that experience. Once God put that into the light and shed his light on it and ministered to me through prayer, I was able to look at these two girls and love them because they no longer reflected pain that I had in my life. What I found out, though, is that for the first two-thirds of that year, I was unproductive because I had 24 other kids in my class and that I had not at all helped because I was focusing on these two girls. So when I look at the fruits of what I did for that year, I had no fruit because, again, there was death in what I was doing with the two girls. Um, I'm going to talk about two girls in the Bible. We have McCall and we have another woman that I'm going to talk about. McCall is Saul's daughter, and I've already talked about King Saul, who was chosen for the Israelites. She was the daughter of Saul. She was said to be very beautiful and very desirable. And David kind of liked her. Saul wanted to use Michal to snare David. He wanted David to bring up, come up with a dowry for Michal that would cause him to die. So he told David, sure, you can marry my daughter, but you have to give me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, which is a way to find yourself dead. So Saul set it up so that David could, could, would die trying to uh, win a dowry for Michal. He was able to come up with 200 foreskins, which is kind of in your face, I think. And he brought him back, was able to marry Michal. And you would think with her, she would think, well, that's kind of cool. This guy's willing to kill 200 people. I don't know if he killed him, but he actually did a very personal thing. <laughs> I, you know, that would be kind of, you know, ego building for Michal. So... He marries her. McCall looks at it, starts looking at her dad, and she starts getting this idea that David 
is going to get killed by her father. So she goes to David and she says, hey, I think my dad's going to kill you. You need to get out of here. So she helps him escape and she puts a like a dummy or they say an idol in his place in bed where they think he's still there and buys him time. He's able to escape. But David never comes back for her. And in fact, she lies to Saul and says, oh, he made me do it because she was trying to save her life from Saul. Saul goes ahead and marries her off to someone else. And then David still never comes back for her. Later on in her life, David decides he wants her again for a wife, so he rips her apart from the marriage that she's in. In fact, it must have been a good marriage because that husband followed after her, screaming and crying because he was so upset about the relationship dissolving. So she's back in David's house. You can imagine, McCall, she's been used by her father, dominated by her father, someone that she thought she loved, which was a David, rejected her, never came her back after she saves his life. She finally finds another life with someone else only to have it ripped from her by the person that she thought she loved. You can imagine this is one angry woman, right? She has probably said a lot of judgments. There is a lot in the shadow that she's not showing. And we know that because the Bible says whenever they mention McCall, they say the daughter of King Saul. So you know that's the face she put to the public. She's a royal woman. She is Saul's daughter. It doesn't say that she's David's wife, which is interesting. It tells you she identified more with the rules and the laws that are within the land. So um, she projected onto David, I think, her fear of rejection. Now, that's just me. You guys can take it or leave it. But we can see a little bit of this when David... um, When he brings the ark, so David becomes king, and he brings the ark in to to the city of David. And while he's bringing the ark in, he's dancing with the common people. And you can imagine, she's up in a tower, she's watching her husband, he's dancing with hardly anything on, and he's dancing with common people, and she's upset. So when he comes to their house, she meets him at the gate, and she says, how dare you? And I'm going to read this directly. So when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow should do. So she's not happy with him. She's really giving him a a hard time about this. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own, my own eyes. But by um, these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honor. After this exchange, Mikhail was angry, and in fact they say that she was barren for the rest of her life. So because she focused her fears that came out, and she didn't deal with the projection that she was projecting on David, she was unable to bring fruit in her life. And I think if we don't observe the projections that we put onto other people and ask God about that, in that area of our life, we can be in danger of not being fruitful. Let's go on to a different story. And this is with Jesus. Um, This one is found in um, Matthew 16. And it was when Jesus is traveling around and he's doing his preaching and his healing. 
And he comes to this one place, and because he's traveling around and he's causing a little bit of alarm with the Pharisees and the scribes, they're following him around, trying to see what he does that's going to be a mistake. Kind of like, I think, I don't know, I'll tell you how my mind works. It's kind of like how we are when we go on the grocery line, and we're waiting in the grocery line, and we're really excited because Kim Kardashian is not doing well. You know, we want to go around... We want to make sure these people are not doing well because how dare they become popular. You know, you kind of, kind of feel sorry for poor Brad and Angelie. You know, you, you, you look at these. And why is that within our society so um, tempting to want to find fault with others and not find, you know, want them to succeed? But anyway, so he's got the scribes and Pharisees who are from Jerusalem come to Jesus, and this is what they said. And if you guys want to look this up, this is Matthew 15, 1 through 10. But the scribes said to Jesus, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So basically what this rule was about, it was an oral rule. It wasn't even a written law. It was oral. It was tradition that said, that you needed to wash your hands in a certain way before you partake in, in dinner. But what, what they're going against is there were two laws. There was the oral tradition, and then there was the written law of Moses. The written law of Moses said only the priests have to wash their hands in this manner before they eat. So, um, so he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And he calls them hypocrites. I had to look this up because I was like, what does that even mean? But... The written law by Moses says to honor your father and mother. We've seen it in the Ten Commandments. The oral law, if I am a daughter, well, I am a daughter. Let's say um, I have money in my, in my estate, and I don't want to share with my father and mother. What I could do is I could promise a portion of my funds to the church. And so if my mother came to me and said, hey, I'm struggling, I need something, I would look at my mother and say, oh, sorry, I don't have it, because most of my money is pledged to the temple, and I would get out of helping my father or mother. The Pharisees were allowing this to happen because they wanted money. They wanted the money for the temple, and so they were allowing oral tradition again to supersede the law. What Jesus was doing is he was bringing out the contradiction or the um, sins that the Pharisees were doing, and because they were doing that sin, it bothered them. Because it really does bother us when we don't do things right. If we are incongruent with God's word, if we are incongruent with God's purpose, we don't feel good. And the Pharisees were doing the same thing they were accusing the disciples of doing, and that's called projection. Jesus called them out on that, and he called them hypocrites. The Pharisees at that point had a choice. They could say, you know, you're right. You are a good teacher. They could have had a fruitful life after that if they would have looked at Jesus, repented, realizing they were making mistakes, and they could have bear, borne fruit throughout their life. Instead, they chose not to do that. 
So um, he tells them a little bit more. He brings up an Isaiah prophecy. And then they walked away from the Pharisees and scribes. As they were walking down the road, they um, see a Gentile, a Canaanite woman, following them. And they, their tradition is to ignore all Gentiles. That's the Jewish tradition. You walk and you don't talk to women, for one thing, and then you don't talk to someone that's a Gentile. They have this Gentile woman, and she's calling them out, and she says, um, I'm going to read it to you. This is in Matthew 15:21 through 28. It says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and beheld a woman of Canaan, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Well, it gives us an insight here that she calls Jesus son of David because it tells us that she realizes that he's the Messiah. When she says son of David, she has an understanding, even though she's a Gentile, that says he's, he's come from the house of David. He is the promised one for the Messiah. But he answered not a word. When I read this, I thought that was strange that Jesus was ignoring someone. I mean, my goodness, why would Jesus ignore this person, right? We're going to read on. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. You know, the disciples are not being very nice here, right? Uh, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning that his ministry was only for the Jewish culture is what he's saying. Um, But he um, then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So it's interesting because you would read this, if you read this literally, you would think that Jesus is a racist, right? He doesn't want to deal with the Canaanite woman. And that's disturbing. But if you look deeper, look at how her response is. After he said, I was only sent to look after the lost sheep of Israel, she came and she worshipped him. So his manner to her couldn't have been um, something that would make us mad, right? I think he was calling out the judgment that she had made on herself. She saw herself as a Gentile Canaanite woman who was going after Jesus, who was a Jew. She was judging herself as her worthiness to have Jesus help her. And I think Jesus was calling that out in her. He was bringing the shadow part of her into the light. And I think that's a lot of what we we can have that relationship with Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, bring out that shadow person in me or parts of that shadow and call it out. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was calling out the part of her that she was judging about herself that would cause her not to have faith for what she wanted. So she went and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Again, I think he's addressing what she has said to herself over and over again. Because, you know, she had to walk to get to Jesus. As you walk, you think, right? So when you think, why am I doing this? I'm not Jewish. I'm a Canaanite woman. He's going to look down on me. He's going to think I'm a dog because that's what they called him. He's going to think I'm a dog. He's not going to give me what I want. She probably had this scenario already in her mind. And Jesus brought that part of her, which she was thinking to herself in her subconscious or even in her head, out into the light and addressed it. But he, um, then she says, yes, Lord, even little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Her faith is getting strengthened by bringing it out in the shadow. She's saying, you know what, a lot of times we think there's something really, really bad about us and we have judged ourselves. 
But when we bring it into the light, we look at it and we say, it's really not that bad. (laughs) I am really not that bad a person that I think I am. And I've been holding on to this forever. And when I bring it out into the shadows, I'm like, oh, I hated myself that I didn't like those two girls. I could, I'm like, what is wrong with me? These are two young girls. Why do I despise them so much? And when the reason for it was brought into the light and Jesus showed me what the reason was, I looked at it and I thought, oh, that makes sense. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm just reacting from a traumatic experience that I had when I was in seventh grade. I can deal with this. I can do this. And my faith became better at what I was able to handle at that point. So Jesus answered her and said, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from from that very hour. So she actually, instead of being barren, she could have looked at Jesus and said, what do you mean calling me a dog? Fine, I'm leaving. And she could have left it like the Pharisees did. But instead, she pressed closer in to, to to Jesus, and she worshipped him, and she says, even the dogs take the crumbs from the children's table. And she pressed in harder, and she was not barren. She was fruitful because her daughter was healed from that time on, and it was because of her faith. So then if we look farther in the verse, Jesus addresses his disciples by saying, in Matthew 16:24 through 26, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciple, If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it in a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So, um, This verse, I think, is God saying to us, we need to be able to give ourselves to Jesus. Not just the stuff we show in an interview, not the stuff that I show to, uh, I I think, half of the people in this room. You know, He wants us to give our whole self. And laying down our life is having the courage to say, Jesus, God, this is who I am. Here's all the icky parts in me. Here's all the judgment that I've said about myself. Here's all of the angry, bitter feelings that I am. And that's laying your life down at Jesus' feet. You're saying, God, I'm not perfect. And you're going to have the humility and the, the courage to say, this is who I am. These are my fears. These are my worries. These are my... And you're going to have to be willing to be transparent. One of the things I told myself when I started going to Monday nights, when Aaron was teaching us how to go deeper was I was going to be honest with my struggle. It didn't matter what, how the other people judged me or how I judged myself. And to tell you the truth, I was struggling with what Aaron was teaching us. So Aaron asks if we have any questions. And, you know, the first thing you want to do is do the self-protective measure and say, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm seeing angels. I'm going into heaven. But I raise my hand and I'm like, I'm, I'm not getting this. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And through the, the dialogue and the conversation, I can feel myself getting better and better and better at it. But it was, I had to lay down who I presented myself to be to others in order to receive healing in that area. Um, so we have to be willing to do this. A lot of, of, all of us have gone through tough things when we were growing up. We've had people point out our negative things, not necessarily all our positive things. We have shelved our dreams that we may have wanted. 
we have put a lot in our shadow. And we, it's time that we decide as Christians to trust Jesus, to bring that stuff out. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for the, the brighter parts of me. He tried, died for everything within me. So I have to honor myself and say, you know what? I am not perfect. I am faulty. I am the dog, <laughs> like the Canaanite person said. These are the things I've judged myself on. And we have to bring that to Jesus and say, Jesus, take even the darker parts of me because I know that you love even the darker parts of me. And that's really hard because some of us have had traumatic experiences. Some of us have had some really ugly things happen to us or maybe even thought some really ugly things. So it's really hard to believe that Jesus is not going to judge us because we were raised in a culture that says Jesus judges He doesn't judge. He loves. He brings to light. He heals. And in order for our life to be fruitful, we are going to need to bring those in front of God so that we can get more back of ourselves. I'm in a second marriage, and when you think about it, through a divorce, you judge yourself. Oh, my gosh, if I would have done this, if I would have done that. And even after my first divorce, even more of a portion went away into the shadow so that when I was marrying for the second time, the person that I was marrying... um, the person that I was in me was a sliver of who I was because most of my stuff was in the shadows. And I thought the only thing that desirable of me was probably about maybe 25% of what I could show the world. Or maybe some of you guys have the feeling, I'm really good at work, but when it comes to friendships and church, I'm, you know, there's things we judge ourselves with. So it's no wonder that second marriages don't work very well because we have already put more things in the shadow. But with God, there's hope. With Jesus, there's hope because we look and look at Jesus and say, you know what? There are some things I don't know what to do with. There are some bitterness. There is some rejection. There is judgment. There is hateful thoughts. Because let me tell you, if you go through a divorce, you go through some hateful thoughts, right? You're going to use your kids for all sorts of things. And it's hateful. But when you bring it to, to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I know you died for me, I know you love even the deeper parts of me, and you're willing to lay your life out, all the parts of it, then you find healing and you find fruitfulness in your relationships, at work, everywhere you go. If I didn't lay some of that stuff out, I wouldn't be as good a teacher as I am. I wouldn't be as good as wife as I am, unless I was willing to find humility and say, Jesus, I'm going to worship you with everything, my worst and my good. The other thing is we have, I think, a mandate. Um, We have a city who is hurting, definitely really hurting out there. You can tell because why would the marijuana business be so successful if people aren't trying to escape? We have some hurting, hurting people in Pueblo. And what... I think our church is really good at this, but what our stance needs to be is the resource for those people to come and find solace. The resource for that person that's only willing to give a 16th percent of them, of their sliver, to come in and say, you know what, we don't love just your sliver, we love all the deeper parts of you. But in order to do that, we also have to examine ourselves. Where do we fail within ourselves? What do we dishonor in ourselves that we project onto others? Because in order to be a resource to people in Pueblo, we have to be able to give all of ourselves to those people. 
we have to be able to identify when we're projecting onto other people our mess and be able to take care of our mess so that we can be strong for others out there who are hurting. I truly believe that our church has a mandate here in Pueblo to be able to reach the hurting, to be able to provide answers. And in order to do that, we have to honor ourselves first. We have to take care of ourselves. It's kind of like when you're in the airplane and you have to, they tell you, and we all ignore it when they tell you what to do if for some reason we have no oxygen. (laughs) But they say to administer oxygen to yourself before your children. We have to be able to examine ourselves and realize the love of Jesus within our lives before we can help others. It is only when we find out that God loves the worst part of us and God brings healing to the worst part of us do we realize and have more zeal to look at someone who we think is a mess to say, God can come in, God can love you, we can love you. Um, You know, I don't know too many. We have... Well, maybe I shouldn't. But we need to be able to approach people who we think are undesirable. Kind of like the disciples, what they said about the Canaanite woman, about being a dog. We need to be able to approach those undesirable people, be willing to hug them, be willing to love them without feeling like we're giving a part of ourselves away. We need to be strong in that. And the best way to do that is to lay our lives down to Jesus and say, Jesus. I'm a mess, but I know that you came to save every part of us. That you don't judge me for thinking terrible things. You don't judge me for judging myself. I've made mistakes, huge mistakes. I've had people make mistakes on me that were huge. But only God and Jesus is the healer that can bring that out in us. And it's, it's um, important because that's what's going to bring fruit in our lives. We have a choice. We can either be McCall, who decides to be barren her whole life because she doesn't want to deal with all of her messy stuff. She wants to be seen as the queen, the desirable one. Or we can be like the Canaanite woman who came up and said, you know what, yeah, I'm a dog, but I'm going to make my life fruitful. And it's within her daughter that she was able to be fruitful. So I don't know. Um, I was thinking about today... And I was thinking there are probably some people out there that have judged themselves, people that may not be able to make the first step in saying, I I don't like myself and I need to change. And if there is something traumatic that you need to, that you've gone through and you want to deal with it, use wisdom because some of that stuff may not be healed unless you have someone out there helping you heal. You may need a counselor. You may need someone to come in and help some of the deeper parts that are traumatic. Or maybe it's something just small that you just need to bring to God and have a realization of. Either one. If you need to do that today, we'll, you can come up and we'll pray for you. Um, there was something else I was going to say and I forgot it. Anyway, um, so if you would like prayer for something that you're dealing with, we're definitely willing to pray. And then we're going to do communion afterwards. So um, we're going to leave a couple minutes if you want to come up.